Welcome to another episode of the View Charlotte Real Estate and Entertainment Podcast. My name is Jeremy Orden, one of the partners with the Orden Writer Group at Allen Tate. Each week we will break down a real estate topic, share stories related to the topic, or have guests with experience in various facets of real estate, and then discuss something about our city that makes it unique. This could be restaurants, things to do, fun facts, or well, virtually anything about Charlotte because Charlotte is such an amazing city with limitless opportunities. The idea of continuing to educate our clients to the real estate market so they can make the best decision for their family is a commitment we stand behind, and hopefully each of these episodes will leave at least a little pearl of wisdom with our listeners. Let's get started. For this week's episode, I'm joined by one of my best friends and business partner, Brittany Osborne. Brittany, of course, is a returning guest, and in addition to being my business partner, she's also my co-host for this entire First Time February series. Everyone who meets Brittany loves her warmth, her real estate experience, her attention to detail, and her amazing negotiating skills coupled with her warm personality. She also brings a wealth of experience in working with first-time homebuyers. So Brittany, welcome back to the podcast. That was quite the intro, and now I'm nervous to live up to all these expectations you've set for everyone listening. Today we're going to be continuing our series for first-time homebuyers. However, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. This week, we're going to be discussing first-time homebuyer mistakes that people should avoid. This topic came to us pretty organically as we were kind of preparing for this series because we both continued to come back to the topics and saying, oh, I wish this was something that everybody knew. For organizational purposes, I thought that we would make this a little bit of a different progression than what we did on the first installment in this First Time Homebuyer series. What we're going to do today is we're going to go through our list of the top 10 mistakes that people should avoid as a first-time homebuyer, and then we'll come back and break each one down with either a short or a long explanation. I'm going to try to chapter these so that you can easily fast forward to the mistakes that you want to learn more about. So, Brittany, I feel like this is a game show, but can you give us the official Orden Rider Group at Allen Tate top 10 first-time homebuyer mistakes to avoid? This is a lot of pressure. I feel like I need like a David Letterman background countdown top 10 like intro music here. All right. Number one, don't buy a problem you can't afford to fix. Number two, don't buy a view you don't own. Number three, setting unrealistic cosmetic expectations. Number four, understanding that school assignments can be redistricted. Number five, like it enough to be able to make an offer, but not so much that you can't walk away. Number six, doing it on your own, zestimate. Number seven, only exploring the areas you already know. Number eight, not understanding home ownership maintenance costs. Number nine, don't buy without resale in mind. And number 10, not relying on the right advice. I think that's a really great complete list. All right, so we're all set for this week. We're all done. Yeah, so let's go back to number <laughs> one. Tell me what you think of number one don't buy a problem you can't afford to fix. 
So I said this um, on the last um, podcast. I think with TV right now, and you know, I love some reality TV. There are a lot of shows about real estate, um, million dollar listing, and you know, house hunters. And I think people have these unrealistic expectations, or they say, "Oh, I really want to fix her up," or "I really want to do this" because I saw that on TV. And you know, you need to be realistic about what you're buying and what it all costs and what you are honestly able to do. I like that approach. I always interpreted this a little bit differently. So when it comes to not buying a problem you can't afford to fix, let's go back to, you know, our favorite topic together, inspections. Sometimes people fall so in love with a property that when the inspection report comes in, there might be structural issues, there could be environmental issues or mechanical issues, And they overlook some of those problems because they just want to secure that house. So making sure that people either have the budget set aside to address the items that are going to come up and need attention or being able to, you know, handle them themselves. Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying before, you know, so not only do you have some unrealistic expectations, and we'll touch on this a little bit later with the cosmetic piece, but from TV or whatever, you know, they've got these expectations of what they want the house to look like, but then also they may just be coming out of this like beautiful apartment complex. So they're so focused on countertops and backsplash and lighting that that's all they want to look at and think about. Whereas they're not focusing on, Hey, there's a crawl space issue that you really need to prioritize those funds for. You can do the countertops later. Number two was don't buy a view that you don't own. Where does your mind go on this topic, Brittany? Well, I think ultimately it goes a couple places. It goes to properties near water. It goes to properties uptown. Um, you can't really control what's going on around you in a city that's changing and developing so much. I, I like that approach. And I brought this back to the two areas that you specifically addressed. Number one being water. Number two being that uptown experience. I've had recent experiences with both. Number one was a lakefront property. Um, They had a dock, but they were pushed back from the water and their pathway to their dock had a lot that was available for sale. And we reached out to that agent. We found out that, you know, there was a proposed house that would be there and it would certainly inhibit the view of the water for those clients. So that property wasn't the right fit for them. The other one very recently was in Uptown. There was a building that was going to be going up next to the current building. So all of a sudden, this gorgeous skyline view that this condominium had would be the view of another building. Yep. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, You want to move on to number three? Setting unrealistic cosmetic expectations. You are my (laughs) cosmetic expertise. So... Tell me more about this one. I love this one. And obviously, I love it so much. I've been talking about it all the way through number one. Um, I think, like I said before, we're living in this culture of Pinterest, social media, reality TV, where all we see is influencers and, you know, this is what my house looks like and this is what's on trend and this is what I'm doing. And so we've got these first time home buyers that are just transitioning out of these gorgeous, you know, apartment complexes that are brand new, state of the art. And they think that's exactly what their first house should look like. And it's not always realistic. And I think sometimes 
educating them to the fact that, hey, listen, this is an investment, right? What you're buying now isn't necessarily what it's going to look like in, you know, three to five years when you're ready to sell it again. You have this time to continue to make these cosmetic improvements and add value. So let's not get in the weeds here expecting everything to look perfect right now when we need to prioritize the money that you have to spend on a house on, you know, all sorts of different things. I think as trends change, we see, you know, specifically in our area of residential real estate, people walk into homes and if something is not currently on trend, they think immediately that it requires a ton of work. So I think having those realistic expectations about what is a deal breaker to you versus what is something that you can fix or change in the future is just so important. But you know, this also ties in with budget and location and everything else. Yep, absolutely. If you want to buy a fixer-upper and you want to make everything look like a Pinterest page, then we need to kind of readjust your search and maybe we need to be looking at different things or something in a little bit of a lower price point where you can do all that. But if you're really set on location and being in your dream spot and the perfect floor plan, then you may have to wait on some of those cosmetic things. Number four is something that I thought was really important, and it was understanding that school assignments can be redistricted. I would say in the ballpark of 40 to 50% of our clients come to us seeking specific school assignments. Obviously, school assignments are really sensitive and a personal topic and one that we technically can't really ever touch on. But as a former educator, you know, what I tell my clients is schools are personal. What you think is a quote good school isn't necessarily what the next person thinks is quote a good school. So I really encourage my clients to do as much research as possible on the schools, not just on the school website. Schedule visits, get in there, spend some time there, you know, talk with with different parents on different forums so that you can really find out what's going on behind the doors because the school that you thought you might want might not necessarily be the school that you really want when you start digging deeper. Um, and furthermore, like you said, that the school that you're districted for today may not be the school that you're districted for in two years. And I think that's the important thing is understanding like you can research everything you want. However, things can change. And sometimes those changes can certainly impact property values. But if you're buying on the fringe area of a school district, Yep. Know that it's a possibility. Yep. And then sort of have a contingency plan. All right. What are you going to do at that point then? So number five is something that, I mean, it's almost become cliche for me because I say this all the time to clients. Yep. I'm going to let you run with this one because this is one of your, I would say this is definitely a Jeremy quote. It's a Jeremy-ism. Yes. So like it enough to make an offer, but not so much that you can't walk away. What I mean by this is when looking at properties especially with my first-time home buyers, I tell them, you know, put an offer in on it. If it's something that is going to meet your needs and it's something that you can see yourself having as your home, then certainly go ahead and write the offer. The problem that we get into is sometimes, you know, regardless of whether it's a multiple offer situation or whether you're looking at a property that meets all of your needs, that you start to idealize this house and nothing in the future will ever come close to matching how you've built this house up in your mind. Right. I think it's important that you like something enough that you could try to secure it. But if it doesn't work out, maybe there's a terrible inspection. Maybe there's, you know, an issue with appraisal or maybe it's just outside of the budget. At the end of the day, like it enough to make an offer, 
but not so much that you can't move on to the next home if it's not the right fit. Exactly. All right. Number six, doing it on your own. Doing it on your own. You know, what I mean by this is we work with a lot of clients who are very successful in their business. They're educated. They're they're doing amazing things. And so they assume, hey, listen, I can handle this. I can figure out where I want to live and I can I can do this process all by myself. But the reality is you may be an expert in your field, but we are an expert in this field. Do not try to navigate this by yourself. That is literally what we are here for. You may be searching online and and doing it yourself, but the information that you're gathering may not and usually is not accurate or up to date. Jeremy, your thoughts on this? I mean, I'll take it a step further. We live in a world where you have almost unlimited access to information. If you look at consumer facing websites, you know, they'll have their own algorithms that will attempt to interpret value, even though obviously that website has never been inside your home. They're looking at just general public available information. But there's access to so much information and really relying on somebody who can interpret that information, somebody that can look at the historical data, somebody that can bring their experience to help guide you through that process, I think is really the most important key factor that ties in here. The other thing that I think is also important is when we apply this theory to new construction, for example. I think that oftentimes for some home buyers will walk into new construction communities, right? There's it's it's everything's shiny, everything's beautiful, they're so excited, there's a wonderful build a rep there that's that's helping you and they just assume okay fine I got this this person's helping me out but something that you need to know is that that rep on site works for the builder they don't work for you and yes they're sweet and we work with with them all the time and and they want to get to the closing table and make the process as pleasant as possible but the reality is their fiduciary responsibility is to the builder not you you still need someone on your side, guiding you, asking questions that you don't realize you need to ask, still encouraging you to have a home inspection done, and navigating the whole process. You still need an advocate for you. And that rep on site is not your advocate. I love that you brought up the new construction because I recently had a situation where we were sitting with a builder's representative and we were talking about the inspection process. And the builder rep essentially said, you can do an inspection, but we're not going to handle anything that's associated with it. Obviously, using my experience, I was able to leverage that, go directly to the management, and they were able to back off of that statement. However, imagine if you're a first-time homebuyer walking into that new construction community, you ask about things that could come up during the inspection, and then you hear that response and you're like, oh, that must be their way of handling it. I, I just think it's so important that you always have your own representation, and especially for a first-time homebuyer. There's no downside to bringing in your own representation. It's not like you're going to be saving money if you do it on your own. And I think that's another misconception too, is that you may be getting a better deal if you don't use a realtor and that's just false. So it's important for you to know that. Number seven, only exploring areas that you already know. I'm going to let you really run with this because (laughs) I don't know anybody better at educating their clients to areas of town or neighborhoods or communities that were not on their radar than you. Well, and I'm going to start with a personal story. So 
Jay and my first house was in Madison Park and we absolutely loved it but it was small and so when our family grew we decided we needed a little bit more space and our budget clearly at that point in Madison Park couldn't really it didn't give us the option to really stay in Madison Park because if we if we wanted a bigger house we needed to go a little bit further out and I remember him saying to me let's think about and Maddie was our realtor at the time. Let's think about Matthews. And I'm like, Matthews, where is, I don't even know where Matthews is. I don't want to live in Matthews. I don't want to lose a Charlotte address, which is so silly. But I was so dead set on not losing that Charlotte address. And as you know, and everybody who knows me knows, I am obsessed with Matthews. I love it. We've now been there for 10 years. And it's right around the corner from basically where we were prior, you know. And But I was so dead set on staying in this area that I already knew and loved so much that I, I wasn't really open at first to exploring these other areas. And I think that's part of our job. It's our job to hear you. What are your wants? What are your needs? What do you like to do? What kind of environment do you want to live in? And then introduce you to some places that maybe you've never even been. Come to find out, it, it could be, you know, your favorite place where you're trying to recruit everyone, including Jeremy, to live. Yeah, I'm not moving to Matthews anytime <laughs> soon. Um, the thing that I, I I come back to is I know that you were working with buyers that were really hunting for like Colonial Village in Charlotte. They were looking at Sedgefield and you introduced them to Madison Park, a neighborhood that was not on their radar at all. And it ended up being like one of the best financial investments they ever made. And they were extremely happy in that home. They absolutely were. And I think, again, because I knew the kind of house they were looking for, the type of neighborhood they wanted to be in, I was able to direct them in a different part of town that they didn't even know really existed or they hadn't really spent much time in. Number eight was not understanding home ownership maintenance costs. So why don't you go ahead and start this one? Well, I think we touched on this in the, in the first um, podcast in this series, which is when you're coming off of renting, you're used to just calling the landlord, you know, you're calling the maintenance company. Hey, this broke. Can you come and fix it? You kind of start to forget that when you own a house, that's your responsibility, you know, and I've had plenty of, of clients I'm showing property to their first time home buyers and they'll say, well, what happens if the wa- if the hot water heater goes out? Well, that's your expense. So, you know, there are things that you're going to have to just sort of build into your budget that are just part of home, home, home ownership. It's the cost of essentially doing business, right? I look at it everything from, you know, having to mow your lawn if you have a lawn, taking care of the water heater if it goes out, maybe investing in a homeowner's warranty to help offset some of those costs. It's it's every single thing associated with that home and making sure that you understand it, whether it's the utility cost per month and whether a newer home will have you know more energy efficiency than an older home or whether it's going to be you're buying a house with a pool and you want to know what the actual costs are to have somebody come and maintain and service that on a regular basis. It also comes down to that homeowners association expense. And I think it just all comes together in the general cost and the affordability, making sure you're as educated as possible so that you can budget. Yep. And also to add one more thing to that, when you work with realtors like us and and people who've been doing this for a while, we have vendors that we trust. So we're able to tell you, hey, this is about the cost that these things are going to be. These are the people we can connect you with so that you can learn more about what that might look like or preventative maintenance and things like that. So again, just another reason why it's good to have an advocate on your side. 
Um, all right, number nine. I'm going to start off with this one. Don't buy without resale in mind. And the reason I want to s- chat about this one first is because I'm going to go back to that same house in Madison Park that was our first house. I loved that house, but it was on the corner of Tyvola. So crazy busy road. And I remember um, thinking to myself, I don't care. You know, it's super cute. I love it. It's in our budget. That street doesn't bother me. And what I learned is that, yes, for resale, that location was going to be a deal breaker for buyers but I had to just be prepared for that right I knew that off the bat when we sold that house there was going to be a pool of buyers that were automatically going to be disqualified because they wouldn't want to live on that street but just like that street didn't bother me there would be other buyers that it wouldn't bother either so I think it's just important when you're purchasing a home to keep in mind that there's a buyer for every house but again you want to make a smart and educated decision and this is where I'm going to punt it over to you Jeremy So I look at this in terms of, you know, probably some exterior features. So let's say a house is near power lines. Um, It's a kiss of death down here having a very steep driveway because people say, well, what do you do when it snows? And the answer is you wait an hour for it to melt and it goes away. But, you know, steep driveways, power lines, you know, unsightly neighbors, the discount that you might be getting on that house when you purchase in order to overcome those obstacles is probably the same discount that you're going to have to give when you turn around to sell that property. So knowing this going in can help you forecast what your potential return on investment is. The other thing that I think is important when you talk about don't buying without resale in mind are going to be the upgrades that you do to the house. We're doing an entire series on return on investment with improvements. And there are certain things that bring huge returns. You know, kitchens and bathrooms are very cliche to talk about, but those bring huge returns. Well, what about installing a pool in the backyard? What about putting up a fence? What about changing out the countertops? What about updating secondary bathrooms or maybe running in like hard surface flooring? All of this is important and you should always have that resale in mind because while a certain percentage of usage tax is to be expected and will definitely calculate in with your return on investment, you want to make sure that you're not over-improving or under-improving a property in order to keep it within line of conformity within the neighborhood. I think that is a perfect segue to number 10, which is not relying on the right advice. So there's an ongoing realtor joke about the dad that shows up to the home inspection. (laughs) And, you know, somebody's father walking in being like, oh, no, like this is going to cost $10,000 to fix. And you're sitting there going, I could get that done for $800. Or, you know, an HVAC unit that might be out of level. And then, you know, they're talking about how the unit's going to fail and it's a $75 correction in order to bring it into level. Right. I think that there's so many different voices that enter our minds, either through social media, our social networks, Mm -hmm. or, you know, as you were talking earlier, reality television, that not relying on the advice and counsel of seasoned professionals can have a very detrimental impact on the entire home buying process. Well, and as I said before, the entire purpose of our job is to help you through this process. We want to make this process as painless as possible and also fun in the pro- in, in the in the process, right? So trust us and know that we are here to help you and that we're giving you this advice because we care about you and we want you to be happy and make this 
you know, the best decision for you and your family. I think it also comes down to who you hire throughout your process. Now, I'm not talking specifically about agents here. Let's talk about inspectors. Let's talk about lenders. Let's talk about the firm that an agent might be associated with. Let's talk about their network of professionals that can come in and handle things. You want to make sure that you're setting yourself up for the highest level of success throughout the process. So really relying on people who have that experience versus the random person on a message forum that's like, oh, I tried that flooring company. I may not have had a good experience with them or I found somebody who will do it cheaper. If there's one thing I have learned over the years, cheaper is definitely not always better. I think you're 100% right on that. And again, just to hit the nail on the head, we are literally here for you. And the advice we give you is because we care about you and we want to make this as successful as possible. I think this went really well. It was nice to change up our approach on this. I agree. And it proves that you should listen to me more often. On that note, thank you to my guest, Brittany Osborne. As always, a pleasure, and you certainly put me in my place. Mm-hmm. Brittany will be back next week with me as we continue our first-time homebuyer conversation. Thank you to our audience for continuing to join us each week. Stay tuned as we transition over to our entertainment topic for the week. For this episode, I'm joined by one of my oldest friends, a person who was a groomsman in my wedding, and probably the only person on the planet who I could sit down and have a free-flowing stream of conscious conversation with that would not have any dead spots. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Chris Sullivan. Thanks, man. I'm really excited to be here. This week's entertainment topic is something that we've been trying to figure out how to incorporate into the podcast since we started and haven't been able to come up with a solution until you and I were talking and you said pretty straightforward, well, just have me do it. So I appreciate your willingness to be such a problem solver. It's really nice to solve a problem for once instead of create it. (laughs) And we're off to the races with Mr. Sullivan. So Charlotte's home to a lot of entertainment and sports activities. However, we're also really the mecca of disc golf. As the person who introduced me to the game and the person who knows more about this sport than anyone else that I know of, obviously you're the right person to lead this discussion on Charlotte's active disc golf community. That's a lot of pressure, but you're right. Charlotte is one of the best places in the world for disc golf. So I will do my best to represent the sport and help grow the sport. Perfect. So let's start with a brief description of what disc golf is. Well, first, let me get some of the lingo out of the way. We don't call them Frisbees, but disc. And what you might think of as traditional golf, like with Tiger Woods or Arnold Palmer, any of those guys, uh, we call that ball golf. Um, So with all that being said, simply put, disc golf is throwing a a disc at a target, usually something we commonly call a basket. And as the name suggests, it shares a lot of the same rules as ball golf. So you want to throw as few times as possible. So it must have been like 15 years ago or so that you introduced me to this game. I think I went into it assuming like we were going out onto a legitimate, as you said, ball golf course and just throwing Frisbees. That's not really this game at all, is it? When talking about disc golf, there's going to be some obvious comparisons between disc golf and ball golf. Uh, There are a lot of similarities between two games, but also a lot of differences. Like I said before, if you're familiar with the rules of ball golf, then you're going to know the rules of disc golf. Uh, The equipment has similar names, putters, drivers, similar terms, birdies, bogeys. 
but we don't really play at country clubs. Um, our courses are located in local parks, um, schools. There's some at universities. There's some breweries that have courses. They're all over the place. So the first place that you ever took me to play was at Reedy Creek in North Charlotte. Instantly, I was a fan, especially on that course. It really combined hiking, being in the woods, throwing a disc, hunting for potentially lost discs, and a friendly level of competition. What do you think the appeal of disc golf is? Uh, good old Reedy Creek, the OG disc golf course, the first uh, course that Charlotte ever got. But as far as the appeal, uh, it's easy to learn. It's a healthy activity, and it's accessible. Um, like I said before, courses are everywhere. Um, parks, neighborhoods. Uh, one time my wife and I even played one of the world's most famous courses, which is on a Christmas tree farm. Um, and like I mentioned before, super accessible. So if you live in Charlotte, probably your morning commute or your commute home or going to the grocery store, you probably pass a disc golf course. You just don't even know it's there. One of the things that I think is really interesting that you and I have talked about is that disc golf doesn't have necessarily a cost barrier to entry. Like if you go play golf or sorry, ball golf, thank you. then you're playing at least $50 and it's going to take three plus hours. Disc golf can be a lot faster and there's no cost unless, you know, you're me who loses a disc consistently while playing. Well, yeah, that's part of the appeal. It's pretty much free to play if you have one Frisbee disc, whatever you want to call them. Is it a faux pas that you just called it a Frisbee? It, it is a faux pas. I'm a little embarrassed with myself right now. I just have my card revoked. So why don't you tell our audience what's the minimum amount of equipment that you need to play? Well, really, you can play with just one disc. You just need one disc and a good pair of shoes, not flip-flops. It's that simple. Like a single disc is going to get you through an entire round. Yeah. In its simplest form, a single disc can get you through an entire round. Now, if you're old like me and you've been playing for a while, you'll start collecting discs. And I currently carry about 20 different discs with me in a rolling cart, like an old man, because I don't want to bend over with a backpack on. So now we're getting into more specialized equipment. So I know that you saw me go a little bit crazy with buying all sorts of discs that were advertised for different purposes, you know, and sort of like with me and golf, it definitely did not improve my game. What sort of specialized equipment is out there for people? Well, really, the most important are the disc and the big major categories for those are your putters, then your mid ranges, and then your drivers. And then it breaks down even further from that. And certain discs uh, do certain things, and that's all based on a numbering system that's put on place on the disc, which is probably a little overwhelming for beginners to look at. But the slower the first number is, the less speed and torque it takes to release the disc. So if you're just going to buy disc for the first time, stick with mid-ranges, things that are seven speed and below. So why don't you describe for our audience who may have no idea about the sport whatsoever, like the average hole in the approach to playing? Well, there really is no average hole. Uh, one thing all holes have in common is a starting point, which is called a tee pad, and then some sort of target, uh, the basket. And then... There is all kinds of things in between. Sometimes there's one tree. Sometimes there's hundreds of trees. Uh, there's a private course in like north of Charlotte that has a trampoline in the tree. So you want to hit the disc on there and have it bounce towards the hole. But really, some are 80 feet, some are 1,200 feet. But you have a starting point and you have a, a destination or end goal. So unlike golf, you're measuring the hole 
in feet versus yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. America. On a national level, Charlotte receives a tremendous amount of attention when it comes to disc golf. It was ranked number one in the United States and number one in North Carolina for the best disc golf destination. My quick Google let me know that we have more than 23 courses in just Charlotte alone, not including some of the amazing courses like Winthrop and Rock Hill. Um, There's going to be 21 active leagues in total, like for our entire metropolitan area, there's 126 courses, 44 leagues, and 16 stores dedicated to disc golf. Yet, it seems like most people aren't even aware of it at all. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming how much you can do with disc golf here in Charlotte. Uh, there's putting leagues. There's tournaments going on on a weekly basis. There's an active online community. Um, but you, you'd be a great way to meet new people if you're new to the city or if you want to make new friends and, and stuff like that. But it's also a game of solitude, and you can go out there and you can play by yourself. And some of my best rounds are when no one's watching, of course. That's just like me when I've played golf alone. Yeah. That's, that's always the times that, you know, I have my single best rounds and I look around, I'm like, there's no one here to witness this. And because people know me, they're never going to believe that I just did what I did. No, no, right. I, I, I played this morning before I came here and I, I knocked in a 50 foot putt and I'm looking around and there's like no one to high five, no one to congratulate. I'm some guy walking his dog, but he didn't care. So... Also from my Google research, (laughs) I know that the Charlotte Disc Golf Club was established all the way back in 1979, a very good year to be born in, by the way, and has hundreds of active members. They have multiple leagues that take place every week. And just from looking at their website before we sat down, I saw that like for this upcoming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday weekend, there were six different events taking place. So like what you mentioned, it seems like a really great way to meet people who have a common interest. Oh yeah, there's there's always something going on, and the best part about disc golf in Charlotte is we can play year round. There's no off season, as they call it, where snow dumps down and you, you can't go out and play. So it's something it it's very social, or it can be, and it happens all the time. Actually, my wife and I's second date was to play disc golf and watch Indiana Jones, and it worked out for me. So it's also probably a good date idea for any other singles out there. So hot take. There we go. Disc golf in Indiana Jones leads to a long, successful marriage with a couple of kids, right? Right. Two of them, yeah. Who, who now play disc golf? <laughs> it's fun for the whole family. It, it, no, it is. It is. It's a great game. On a championship level, I also noted that we are the annual host to the Disc Golf Pro Tour Championship. Now, this is a much different or bigger deal than just going out and throwing plastic discs, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This thing's huge. Uh, it. They, it even airs on ESPN, and it has the largest payout, and it has an equal payout between men and women, which is really cool. But yeah, people buy tickets. There's vendors selling food, selling discs. Uh, it's a big affair, and it lasts for a couple of days and brings a lot of people to Charlotte. So not to make the obvious comparison to golf, but it seems like we could just keep coming back to this, where you have people that go out and play a couple of times a year for fun, and then you have people who are professionals and then everyone in between. However, unlike golf, it seems like the barrier to entry for disc golf is just so much lower. Yeah, I mean, first off, the cost and the equipment you need it to play, it's easy just to get out there. Um, And it's also really easy to learn, but really difficult to master. And that's part of the the fun of the game. Uh, 
you're really just kind of challenging yourself after a while. So I know that you play every Thursday, even if it's raining, which is just crazy to me because I've been out there with you in the rain and I don't want to be outside in the rain. Why has this sport captured your attention for such a long period of time? Well, first of all, I would prefer not to play in the rain, but uh, I'd rather be playing disc golf than uh, sitting on my couch or, or something like that. And there's waterproof shoes now and raincoats. Technology and clothing has really advanced. But with all that same being said, uh, disc golf has meant so many things to me over the years. And not to get too cheesy, but you know, when I first moved to Charlotte, um, God, almost 20 years ago, I used the disc golf holes to learn the city, to travel about, and just discover my bearings. And then eventually it became an escape from my wife and my kids. But, but now, um, and work, of course, um, but now, you know, the kids come with me and I have friendships that have been maintained through disc golf over the years. And it's just, it's like cold brew coffee. It's part of my identity. Bringing it back to coffee. Yeah. I mean, just, Cobra. I mean, I warned the audience in advance that like you and I can have a very free flowing stream of conscious conversation. So yeah, yeah. We have no idea where this conversation might go. I'm reminded of a story like the day of my wedding, you and I went out with a bunch of people to go play disc golf. I don't think anyone other than you and I had played before. And like all of these people had such a blast, like they really enjoyed it and instantly liked the sport. I mean, I've taken my mother to go play and she loved it. I've taken my kids and we've played at courses at their school and they have a great time. Why is this an activity that appeals to people across multiple generations and athletic ability? Because you you don't have to be super athletic to do it. Um, and you don't have to be a certain age. Uh, I've seen five-year-old playing. I've seen uh, senior citizens with one bag of like a target bag that has a disc in it and they can out throw everybody. It's just, it. it's something you can do for the rest of the life. If you really enjoy it, it's, Nothing's stopping you. There are very, like I said, there's very few barriers. So let's start to wrap this conversation up with about courses in our area. So obviously I want to talk about, you know, the first time that you took me to play, which I mentioned um, at Reedy Creek. And that anytime that somebody tells me that they want to go play for the first time, that's the course that I always want to take them to, probably because that's the first place that you took me to. Yeah, Reedy is the OG. It's uh, It's been here forever. But Charlotte has such a wide variety of courses from super challenging championship level courses to little nine hole courses placed in the middle of Plaza Midwood. It's anything you're looking for uh, as far as your game. If you want to be challenging or you want a nice easy round, Charlotte has a lot. Lots of things for beginners. And as you advance, uh, some more difficult courses, a lot more difficult courses. So what courses would you recommend for people who are just starting out and might go out there with like one disc to try this out, you know, maybe with their family or on a date night before they watch Indiana Jones? If you're just starting out playing disc in Charlotte, uh, there's my wife's favorite beginner course, which is the Eager Beaver in Ballantyne. Uh, there's Rinsky, which is off 77, like Tavola Road area. Um, up north of the city in, I think it's Cornelius, there's Bailey Road Park. And then there's other nine holes sprinkled throughout the city. There's a nine hole course right in the middle of Plaza Midwood. You may not even notice there's nine hole course in Mint Hill. Just hop online. If you want to look for a course, that's rated beginner if it's your first time. Cause if you go to some of these more advanced and technical courses, your first time, you'll be a little overwhelmed and frustrated. 
So my two favorite courses that I've played with you are Renaissance and Winthrop. Renaissance is right in Renaissance Park off of Tybola, and it's right down the road from South Park. So it really makes you feel like you're in the center of the city and yet you're in the woods. It's super challenging, really frustrating, but easily my favorite destination I think I've played with you. Yeah, Renaissance is fantastic. And there's actually three courses there. Um, they have Rennie Gold, which is the big guy, and super long 1,200-foot holes. They have Pro Player, which plays off of Rennie Gold, but it's not as uh, not as difficult. And But then there's Rinsky, which is a nice little fun 200-foot shots all the way around. And it's just a good way to like just get out there and throw a couple discs in under an hour. So that's something that I think brings up an interesting topic when it comes to disc golf is that you'll see courses laid on top of the course, like what you were just describing. Yeah, there's several courses that share a parking lot here in Charlotte. So where you'll have a beginner-friendly course here, and then you'll have a more challenging course over here. Um, and, you know, if you want to, you can play a challenging course and go throw some holes on the easier course just to cool down or, or warm up. Then, as I mentioned, there's Winthrop, which is tons of wide open spots. It's just beautifully manicured and wraps around that lake that, you know, I've donated multiple discs to over the years. Yeah, no, Winthrop's fantastic. And that's uh, obviously, as the name suggests, on Winthrop's campus. Uh, other than the the geese that will attack you from time to time, it really is pretty serene and um There is another challenge, and sometimes like some of the co-eds will be sunbathing, or people will be like throwing balls in the middle of the disc golf course. You you really don't want to hit them with your you know your frisbee or your disc. It's funny because you bring up like trampolines and trees, co-eds laying out sunbathing. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like there's certain courses where it's miniature golf combined. (laughs) I I I saw a girl dressed as a mermaid once. getting pictures of her taken and it wasn't even like nice water behind her if anybody's familiar with the uh the pond at a at scrapyard they'll know what i'm talking about it was really odd so what are your other favorite courses that you go out and play um my favorite course in in the charlotte area is actually up in huntersville and it's called bradford park i just think that has a little bit for everybody it's got some wide open shots it's got some short holes it's just got a nice variety um, my most played course is probably the Angry Beaver, the Angry Beaver uh, in Valentine. I just I've been playing that one since before it even had like pads pulled. I just love it. Or I, pads poured, excuse me. I, I think that's where you took me the last time, and we yeah. just got rained on the entire time we <laughs> yeah, were out we, there. Yeah, we did. And yeah. then all of a sudden, like the rain stopped, and right as we were done, it was so humid. Like. <laughs> I just kept going like, I don't know why I follow you out here. Yeah, well, you know, because you have a good time. It's fun. That's it. And even this conversation is making me want to play again. Like, I've really, it's been a little while and I forgot how fun it is to go out there and do this. Well, you, you know where I'll be on Thursdays. I'll be out there playing somewhere. So finally, let's come back to the discussion of gear. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned like the barrier to entry for this game. It's really super low. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can walk into uh, a Dick's Sporting Goods and they sell discs and they sell little, little three pack starter kits, uh, which I have, I have no idea how much they are. Let's say 20 bucks, 20, 25 bucks, something like that. And that's three discs and you can start playing right away. Um, and then eventually, you know, you can go to some of the more 
uh, specialized stores here in the Charlotte area. Um, played against sports. There's another round in Noda. There's Cloud Dine out in Mint Hill. And they'll have more specialty discs, more expensive, like, like nerdy, like disc golf stuff. And you can buy baskets there and carts and and the cart is literally just, I've seen you with it. Yeah. It's, it's a buggy that you pull behind you and you sit down on it. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I love it. It's, it's, it they even, uh, in the UDISC app, they even have cart friendly now as an option if, when you're looking at course, uh, course reviews. So preparing for this conversation, like I went on Amazon, I did some deep research to prepare for you, Chris. Oh, thank you. And they had a five disc set for 50 bucks. They had a three disc set for $27. Yeah. I mean, we're we're talking about the price of a pizza for an activity that you can go out and continue to play again and again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once you have discs, and unless you lose them, um, you're good to go. And one of the best things about the Charlotte community is usually if you write your name and your number on the bottom, uh, you'll have your disc returned to you. Um, they'll drop it off either at one of the stores or you'll meet up with the guy and stuff like that. But yeah, so once you kind of put your, your money in the door, you don't really need to keep buying golf balls or tea times or, or anything like that. So there were a couple of resources that I thought that could be beneficial for people to learn more about this activity, because obviously I don't want to give out your phone number for you to become the unofficial ambassador. I don't want that. Of Charlotte Disc Golf. <laughs> <laughs> um, a national resource that you mentioned, and obviously there's an app is udisc.com, um, where you can see all of the events and courses. And then there's also the Charlotte Disc Golf Club that we mentioned that was available at charlottedgc.com. Even the Charlotte Mecklenburg website had an entire section dedicated to the nine parks that they maintain courses on at mecnc.gov. Uh, yeah, no, UDISC is fantastic. And uh, you can keep track of your scores you're playing. And uh, the pros use it. Normal people use it. Um I have a paid version. I think it's like 10 bucks a year where I'll keep all my stats. And, uh, but there, there is also a free option where you can like download and pull up the map and it'll show you where some of these courses are. Uh, the disc golf, the Charlotte disc golf club is, I believe the largest disc golf club in the world. I may be mis uh, not speaking of that correctly, but, uh, it's huge and it's well organized and probably not as well funded as it should be. Uh, so they have lots of things you can do to donate money to them. You can join the club for 25 bucks, uh, and you can get all that information on Charlotte disc golf club. And then with that entry fee, you'll be able to, you know, get a couple bucks off entering these tournaments and, uh, you get coupons to disc golf related things. And I had no idea the Charmec website, uh, parks website had even mentioned disc golf, but I'm not surprised. Like I said, there are a lot of parks here in Charlotte. It's amazing because even just driving around, um, you know, over the last week that we've been planning to do this conversation, I noticed like people have these baskets in their yards. You see them at schools like it's really everywhere. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said we don't have a barrier to entry here. You could play this game 365 days a year, even in the rain, even even in the rain, if you're bold enough yeah. and it's a fun activity that can be a family activity or, you know, as you were talking about a date activity or just a really great way to meet new people through a social active thing that you can do outdoors. Yeah. I know when, uh, when you and I were looking at houses and, and, uh, you sold me my house, one of the, one of the key things I wanted, I didn't care about backsplashes or, or powder rooms or anything like that. I wanted a place in the backyard where I could, uh, put up my basket and work on my putting, which is still horrible, by the way. 
but uh, at least at least I'm trying. It's like people who want to have space for a putting green in their yard. This yeah, yeah. is just your putting green. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much to my good friend Chris Sullivan for being the unofficial spokesperson for Disc Golf in Charlotte. Maybe next time you and I can sit down and come up with our list of like the best debut albums of all time and somehow find a way to tie that in with Charlotte so that we can stay on our topic. Oh, I have a lot of opinions on that. And I know you wanted to hear me talk about Boston's self-titled album for at least 30 minutes. This is a conversation that you and I have had for decades. And oh, we that will, was great. We'll leave Boston, Boston out of it. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you to our audience once again for joining us. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the View Charlotte Real Estate and Entertainment Podcast. I live the froth.